Christian is walking along the beach and he stumbles across a lamp. He knows the drill. He rubs it. This magic genie appears. Genie says, you know the drill. You got three wishes. Guy says, okay, sweet. I want you to cure all the sickness in the world. Genie says, you got it. Poof. Snaps his fingers. Done. What's your second wish? Guy says, whoa, that was amazing. I started to feel like I was coming down with something. All better. Awesome. Um, okay, I want you to feed all the hungry people in the world. Genie says, done. Snaps his fingers. Poof. Food, magically, to every corner of the, the earth. Hunger, solved. Genie says, what's your third wish? Guy says, amazing. All right, um, I want you to put an end to all war and fighting. Genie says, that one's tricky. I don't know if I'm really a- allowed to, to mess with human free will. Do you have another wish in mind, maybe? Guy says, bummer. Um, I have been looking for a church to join. Could you just took me up with a perfect church? Genie thinks about it for a minute and says, so you want to end to like all the war in the world, right? <laughs> Welcome to West Hills. We're a, we're a <laughs> how about that segue? We're a church of imperfect people here, admittedly joined together by our worship of a perfect God. And like any church family, we definitely have our dysfunctions to be sure, but we're still a family and I'm so blessed to call you guys, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're new to our family here, you're visiting this morning, we are so excited and just want to welcome you here. Uh, I think you'll find this to be uh, a really beautiful church family and could be a church home for you. I'm especially honored to be sharing with you this morning from God's Word. Um, my name's Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor here at West Hills. I'm filling in one final week for Pastor Gary, our head pastor. But hey, here's the, re- the real reason I started with the genie story. It's, um, I use it as a little bit of an analogy this morning. This morning is our final sermon in our Simple Prayers series that we've been working through this summer. I've been breaking down what um, some of the prayers of the Bible have to teach us about our own prayer lives. And uh, specifically, these last four weeks, we've ended in the Lord's Prayer and what Jesus himself has to teach us about prayer. And so this morning, we conclude that series and this series um, with the last half of the Lord's Prayer, five verses where Jesus is going to shift gears completely here and we're going to turn our focus and our attention from God a little bit and his fatherhood and his transcendence and his holiness and the howling of his name, the coming of his kingdom, his will being done. Prayer has been all about God so far and now we shift, and Jesus is going to introduce a revolutionary new concept into the prayer lives of his followers that actually invites us into the prayer in a fundamentally new way with two little words. Give us. Give us, he says. He not only invites us into prayer and intimacy and boldness with, with which Jesus approached the Father, if it wasn't radical enough that he called God, for the first time ever, Abba, Daddy, if that wasn't radical enough, he takes it a step further this morning with these two words. And being so audacious as to ask God, to insist of God, give us. Jesus doesn't even say please. I mean, the, this guy, the boldness of this guy, how, how can he be so audacious? How can he... Instruct us to be so audacious when we pray, 
Well, as we examined a few weeks ago, it's precisely because God is Father. And as Tim Keller put it in that great quote that I shared with you, the only person that dares to wake a king up at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. Remember, it's not just an invitation, it's an exhortation. Jesus actually commands us to bring our petitions before God. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. See, but that's the thing. We've got to ask it in his name. And what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? God, give me a new speedboat. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. No, that's not, that's not it. Right? It means to pray according to Jesus' will. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Right? God, if it be your will, would you give us? Now, how do we know that when we pray that, that we're actually praying in alignment with God's will? That's the million-dollar question, right? Well, frankly, oftentimes, we don't. We don't know. We want a friend to beat cancer. And, and we know that God is able to heal her. We know that we serve a God of the living, and we long for and we pray for that healing, but ultimately, we know, trust, God's will be done. Right? And we, we have to trust that he has a plan and that it's good even when we can't always see it. But this morning, Jesus is going to offer us three petitions that we can always bring before God with absolute confidence that when we pray for these three requests, we are always praying according to his will. And at the risk pushing the genie analogy too far here because God is not just our personal genie here to do our bidding. We all know that. But if he was and he gave you three magic wishes, Jesus is going to answer for us this morning what they should be. Please stand with me as you're able and let's read his words together aloud. We're in Matthew 6, 11 through 15, if you're going to be in your Bible. Otherwise, we'll have the passages on the screen for you. Would you read it aloud with me now? Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we want to know how to pray this morning. We want to know what it means to ask according to your will. And so, Father, would you teach us, give us, give us, open minds and hearts to receive the words you've prepared for us, and would you hallow your name in us as we seek to apply your word in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people agreed by saying, amen. You may be seated. All right, so Jesus gives us three petitions, and with each, he's going to give us both a need that we are to bring before God, as well as a challenge that God is going to bring before us. Let me say that again, and, and while I'm doing it, you can draw it up as the overarching outline in your bulletin for the morning if you want. I got this to Atlanta too late to get it printed, but here it is. Three-point sermon, two sub-points underneath each of those. Three petitions. With each of those, Jesus is going to give us 
One, a need that we have that we bring before God, and two, a challenge that God is putting back to us. All right, it's kind of like when I ask my dad, my mom's here with me again this morning, so I'll pick on my dad because he's not here, and uh, that way I'll know if he actually watches the sermons online or not too. Uh, dad, if you are watching, it's like when I ask you what you want for your birthday, and he says nothing at all. You know, I don't need more stuff. No, I'm always just happiest just to spend time with my beautiful grandbaby. And so what he's really asking for, right, for his birthday is for us to come visit a little more. Right? But he didn't want to just come out and say it. This morning, underneath each of these needs that Jesus is going to uh, ask us to ask of God, these petitions, there's a deeper challenge lying underneath it there that God is issuing to us. And so life group leaders, if you're here, these challenges will also be your questions for further reflection for this week as you lead your life group discussions. Because God wants to use this prayer this morning as a kind of mirror to hold up for us to examine our hearts. And so it goes back to our very first sermon in this series uh, from way back in June from Psalm 139. Search me, O God. God is encouraging and facilitating that kind of soul-searching, that kind of self-examination in and through the petitions of the Lord's Prayer this morning. So let's look at each of them in turn. Petition number one, give us this day our daily bread. Let's unpack that. With this one simple idea, Jesus actually points us to two distinct needs in our lives and at the same time issues multiple challenges to us in the process. Our first need, for starters, is we need spiritual nourishment. The early church fathers who interpreted this passage considered the Lord's prayer far too profound and holy to be interpreted literally. When Jesus says daily bread, he must be referring to our spiritual food. Right? Indeed, in its context in Matthew, Jesus has only referenced bread one other time. And it was in Matthew 4 when he's in the wilderness and he's hungry and he's tempted by Satan to prematurely break his fast. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 when he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word is our spiritual bread. And then later in John chapter 6, Jesus proclaims, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never be hungry. Jesus is the very word of God, come in the flesh. He is our spiritual nourishment. So we can't miss the spiritual meaning and implications of Jesus' prayer here and the challenge that naturally accompanies it. Do we actually live on every word that comes from the mouth of God? Are you and I as dependent on our spiritual nourishment from God every bit as much as we are on our physical provision from him? Are we as hungry and thirsty for God's word when we wake up in the morning as we are for breakfast? It's a really practical, convicting question for us, deeply convicting that Jesus implies and wants to remind us of and, and we need to ask regularly this morning and every morning. But at the same time, we can't, over-spiritualize the passage and ignore the very literal, plain-sense meaning of Jesus' words here, especially given his first-century context. Daily bread might just mean daily bread. It might just mean physical provision. After all, Jesus is talking to a bunch of Galilean peasants who didn't receive a monthly paycheck. They got paid by the day. At the end of the day, 
if they could find work that day and if their boss could afford to pay them based on the profits that they made that day. No unions, no department of labor. Right? This is, most people live meal to meal, paycheck to paycheck. And yet, in that context, Jesus doesn't instruct them to dream big to pray big, to pray for God's blessings to just come raining down on you so you never have to worry where your next meal is going to come from. No, Jesus specifically instructs them to pray, give us this day our daily bread, enough just for today. I like how one commentary put it, the prayer is for our needs, not our greeds. It's a good phrase to memorize. Or another one, Kent Hughes jokes, We are to pray for bread, not dessert. It's good. Jesus' Jewish listeners would have certainly thought back to Exodus 16 here when he issued these, these words, when their ancestors wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and survived solely off of manna, bread sent down from heaven that God miraculously provided for his people in an otherwise foodless desert wasteland. But there was one stipulation that God gave them with the manna. You Remember what it was? You can't save it, right? You can't stockpile it. You've got to collect it afresh every morning. Why? Because God wanted to teach them dependency on him. And he could even use physical means to do that. Jesus' audience would have also heard the words of another prayer from the Old Testament ringing in their ears, a less popular one we might not remember. A powerful, convicting prayer, though, from Proverbs 30. God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. God, give me just enough, right? Just enough for today, but not so much that I'm able to trust in myself in in the illusion of my own self-sufficiency, my own ability to provide for myself and forget you and deny your role as the sovereign author of every good and perfect gift from above, James 1. And forget, God, that you are the one who gives the power to get wealth in the first place, Deuteronomy 8. God, don't let me ever become like the affluent church in Corinth of whom Paul had to ask, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You don't own that. It's a lease from God. Jesus' prayer here for our physical provision challenges us then in two ways. It convicts us both of our tendency toward greed at the same time as it convicts us of our tendency toward autonomy. It challenges us to be both more content as well as more dependent on God. That's why Jesus would say, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That, that awesome life-changing kingdom we spent all last week talking about. It's harder for a rich man to get in than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Why? Because there's something bad about money? No. Because there's something bad about what too much money does to a human heart. Too much money makes us greedy and it makes us autonomous. Like any good thing that turns into the bad thing when it becomes the main thing, sex, work, Caffeine, sugar, money has this addictive property inherent to it. And so paradoxically, the more of it we get, the more of it we feel like we want and need. It's kind of the definition of addiction, right? That's why John Rockefeller, the richest man in modern history, could say when he was asked, 
How much money is enough? Just a little more. Greed. Just a little more. Which leads then to autonomy. It's a great quote from one of my favorite movies, There Will Be Blood. Daniel Plainview, rich oil prospector, says, I want to earn enough money that I can get away from everyone. And money allows you to do that if you want to. <laughs> it allows you to live independently, self-sufficiently. I don't need you for anything. I got me. And yet God created us with a desperate need for one another, for real relationship, for community, but most of all for him. He created us with a spiritual need for him. And no amount of money can solve our sin problem. No amount of money solves our sin problem. It's like trying to pay the pizza guy with the monopoly money from your other pocket on game night. That, that form of currency isn't good here. That money doesn't work here. Now, in his genius design, God created the physical and spiritual worlds to be so intertwined that we can actually get closer to him spiritually by means of, and learn to rely on him more by means of our physical experience of the, of the world. That's why fasting is such an important spiritual discipline. That's why in the next passage after this one in Matthew 6, in Matthew 6, 16, Jesus is going to say, and when you fast. He doesn't say if, he says when. Jesus expects that his followers will fast. Why? Because, again, we have to know what it means to need. I love that Jimmy Needham, his name is kind of ironic, just thinking of that. Jimmy Needham's song, All We Need Is Need. Doing my best just to hide my mess, but all we need is need. It's the chorus. Money is so dangerous because it can really go a long way in hiding the mess, can't it? I mean, you got enough money, you can hide wrinkles. There's a cream for that. You got enough money, you can hide boredom. There's a sports car for that. You got enough money, you can hide marital conflicts and even infidelity. There is a high-end, confidential, anonymous escort service for that. There are lots of messes you can hide with enough money. And Polly and I get to spend the next two weeks with her family up in Country Clubville, USA, in Harbor Springs, Michigan. And let me tell you, it is an all-out competition up there to hide the mess. Heaven forbid your yacht have a scratch on it. And don't get me wrong, it is a, it's a beautiful place, and we're blessed to be able to escape from reality for two weeks every summer to go up there and try and infiltrate this place with the gospel, but it's probably the toughest mission field on earth. Because how do you explain to someone who has literally never wanted for something in his life, much less needed for something, this guy wants something, he literally rings a bell and someone brings it. We've got people for that. How do you explain to that guy that he needs Jesus? Paul would say you do it by reminding him that all the money in the world won't buy him immortality. And by the way, when, you do, when he does die, he can't take it with him anyways. 1 Timothy 6, 7 through 9 says, We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And so because we recognize that, we must realize that life has to be about more than just accumulating wealth. It has to be about more than just living life for this life. It has to be about storing up eternal rewards in a kingdom where moth and rust don't destroy. Thus, Timothy, uh, Paul says, 
But if we have enough food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. So Jesus' prayer for daily bread challenges us in our greed and our autonomy, but it challenges us in a third way as well. You and I cannot in good conscience ask God to give us our daily bread if we already have enough bread in the pantry for the next two weeks. Meanwhile, the guy down the street doesn't know where his next meal is coming from, right? And how selfish and insensitive and just plain pointless would that prayer be on our part? God, give me more bread. More bread. I can't even eat all the bread I've got in my pantry right now without being sick, but give, give me more bread today. Doesn't make any sense. No, Jesus has us pray this because he knows it's an accountability check. And if you actually think about what you're praying when you pray it, you will not pray it unless you're ready to, to be willing to open up your pantry and share with those in actual physical need of daily bread today. That's why we pray, give us our daily bread, not give me. I'm praying for the 800 million people worldwide who will go to bed hungry tonight. I'm praying for the 8,000 children under the age of five alone who will die from hunger-related preventable causes today, one every 10 seconds. If I'm not actively doing something as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus about that, then I have no business praying for my daily bread. It's like James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Don't bother praying that they'd be warm and filled. Just go warm and fill them. Let that be your prayer. So to recap, give us our daily bread challenges us in our one, greed. Are we content with just our basic necessities, our daily bread? Two, it challenges our autonomy. Am I desperately dependent on God? Do I look to him and lean on him every single day or do we forget about him and our self-sufficiency? And three, it challenges our generosity. Are we willing to go beyond empty prayers and put our money where our mouth is to ensure that those who do actually need bread today receive it because we too know what it meant to be in need and we had one who came in and met that need in us, our greatest, deepest spiritual need that we all have. And so we seek to follow in his example and laying down our lives like he did for us, for others in meeting needs. Petition number two, forgive us. Forgive us our debts. Not Behavior modification, that's identity change. We needed more than superficial cosmetic surgery. We needed open heart. And Jesus says, unless you've been born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Our old self didn't just need to be fixed. It had to be killed. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus died so that those who might live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. That's what his forgiveness bought for us. He had to forgive more than just my sins. He had to forgive me. Jesus had to be able to Look at me, the kind of person who would do the things that I've done in my life and continue to do sometimes. He had to look at me, not just my sins, at me, 
and say, I want you. In spite of it, I want you. How much harder is it, though, for us to forgive debtors than just debts? Corey Ten Boom, the famous Christian activist who helped hide and save the lives of hundreds of Jews during the Holocaust, tells the story of watching her sister be shot and killed right in front of her eyes. And she said it took her years to, to get past that and to forgive that action, and rightfully so. It's horrific. But then she recounts that in her old age, years after that, after she'd become famous for her heroism, she was approached by a man who confessed that he was the Nazi soldier who had killed her sister that day and wanted her forgiveness. And she said, you know, I learned something about forgiveness that day. It's one thing to forgive a debt, and it's another thing entirely to forgive the debtor. Some of us this morning have failed to forgive because we have a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to forgive. So I want to try and clear that up. We've confused forgiving with excusing. We bought into this utterly insane notion that to forgive means to forget. Do you think that Corey Ten Boone forgot her sister's death? Do you think that Jesus would want her to forget that? And yet somewhere along the way we've confused forgiving an offense with overlooking it, with minimizing it, with rationalizing it, justifying it, excusing it. And so we try and convince ourselves that, eh, it wasn't really that bad. Some of y'all have met Rachel, our student from our time at Culver, uh, the boarding school where Polly and I worked before we came here. And she often still comes back and stays with us when she's on break from college. She gave me uh, permission to share her story with you this morning. When Rachel was 10 years old, her mom committed suicide. And when she was 13, her dad went to prison for tax fraud. And as Paul and I began to form a relationship with her and, and began to counsel her, it became more and more clear that she was locked up emotionally, not just because of these traumatic events that she had gone through in her past, but maybe just as significantly because she'd never actually grieved them. And specifically because she'd never actually grieved the injustice of what her parents did to her. They did this to her. She'd never come to grips with that. They, you have to choose suicide. You have to choose to cheat on your taxes and face the consequences, not just for yourself, but for your family. And for six years, Rachel had been trying to convince herself that, eh, it wasn't that bad. Crap happens. It's no one's fault, except sometimes it is. Sometimes it's someone's fault. It's her fault. He did this to me. And the path to forgiveness doesn't just circumvent personal agency, it runs right through it. That's what Jesus is telling us this morning. You've got to recognize not just that you've been wronged in the passive tense, but you wronged me in the active tense. And to say, eh, it wasn't really that bad, is really to say, I haven't really been wronged. And in that case, then of course forgiveness can't take place because there's nothing to forgive. You've minimized the offense. For Jesus, forgiveness doesn't mean justifying, but neither does it mean holding it over the other person because love keeps no record of wrongs, 1 Corinthians 13. It means to acknowledge the wrong committed and the one who committed it, but to consciously choose not to allow that offense to dictate either your own identity or 
the identity of the offender. Let me say that again because I think when we truly understand this biblical concept of forgiveness, it's one of the most liberating, empowering concepts there is. And I can almost promise you there is someone in this room this morning who needs to hear this and write it down and go home and pray about it and wrestle through it because God is convicting you this morning. Biblical forgiveness means to acknowledge the wrong committed and the one who committed it, but to consciously choose not to allow that offense to dictate your identity and future or the identity of your offender. For Rachel, that meant to finally admit to herself and to actually write a letter to her parents that no, this wasn't all right. Actually, it sucked what you did to me. And I didn't choose it, you did. And it has caused me massive hurt and pain over the years, and I will continue to have to deal with the practical implications of parents who did this for the rest of my life. But guess what? I'm not going to allow it to dictate my entire identity. God's got a better name for me than that. I'm not just going to be a victim. He's got a better name for me than that. And then Rachel had to pray that over time, over time, God's God would help her choose not to let her parents' entire identities in her mind's eye be defined by their choices either. That God would help her see her parents in the same way that he does through his eyes as broken, sinful people desperately in need of his grace. And in the absence of God's grace, she's no different from them. But for the grace of God go I. As John Stott put it, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. Put even more simply by Paul Tripp, no one gives grace better than the person who knows he's in most desperate need of it himself. And that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do here. The second petition is the only one in the Lord's Prayer in which Jesus explicitly spells out not just our need, forgive us, but God's challenge to us as well, as we have forgiven others. That's a challenge because it's too important to leave it to subtleties. Jesus has us pray, God, forgive me with the same measure that I use to forgive others. The same amount of forgiveness I've given them, God, the people that have wronged me, give me that much forgiveness. And in case there's still any ambiguity about the point, this is the only section of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus felt it necessary to footnote again at the end. Right? In verses 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you yours. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Is that clear enough for us this morning? Is that scary enough to anybody else? The great Puritan preacher Thomas Watson put it this way, a man can as well go to hell for not, giving for, for not forgiving as for not believing. Charles Spurgeon said, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. And Kent Hughes drives home the point even more sharply. If we will not forgive, we are not Christians. This is a frightening statement, but it is true. 
For when God's grace comes into our hearts, it makes us forgiving. We demonstrate whether we have been forgiven by whether or not we will forgive. So if I refuse to forgive, there's only one reason. I am outside grace, and I am myself unforgiven. Now, I want to make three quick qualifications to that before we move on to our our last petition. First, forgiveness is, or at least can be, a process. And, And Kent Hughes himself will qualify this in the next paragraph that I don't quote for you. But he says, I'm not talking about people who are struggling with forgiveness, it's, it's those who have no desire to forgive who are in soul danger. We might very well struggle, and, it, and it's a process. It might happen. It might take years for you to forgive based on the offense and based on the offender in a lot of cases. It's a process. But if you're not somewhere in that process, if you're not taking steps toward forgiveness, if you can't look back and see progress and see resentments that by God's grace have fallen away as you've surrendered them and overcome them in your heart, bitterness, surrender. If you can't see that, there's a problem. Qualification number two and related, given that forgiveness is a process, it's not only unrealistic to expect someone who has very recently been majorly wrong to immediately forgive and move on, it's also unchristian friend comes to you for counsel, advice, consolation, whatever it is, you need to know this. If one of you came to me in my office for counseling, crying because you'd just been violently mugged by someone the day before, you couldn't even sleep last night because every time you closed your eyes, you saw his face, it would be appalling for me to advise you in that moment that you just needed to forgive and move past this. It's not what you need in that moment. In that moment, you need a tissue, a hug, a listening ear, a doctor, maybe a lawyer. You need a lot of things. And you will need forgiveness one day, to be sure. But eventually, eventually is the key word. And finally, number three, we need to point out that forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation. This is an important point. Reconciliation is when forgiveness meets repentance. But if both those things aren't in place, reconciliation may not only not be unwarranted, reconciliation might be downright dangerous. We don't advise the wife being abused by her husband to go back into that situation and try and reconcile right then, right? I mean, she may very well forgive him from a distance someday, but it might be long after she's kicked him out of the house and set up boundaries for herself that she never meets with him face to face again. Reconciliation requires repentance on the part of the offender. And still, even with all that being said, we forgive. Forgiveness is still there. We forgive as we've been forgiven. Lastly, petition number three. We've prayed, give us daily bread, forgive us our debts, and finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How can Jesus instruct us to pray not to be led into testing, temptation, when in his very own temptation by Satan in Matthew 4 that we already referenced, we hear that Jesus was led into it by God himself? Here's what Matthew 4, 1 says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted 
by the devil. How do we make sense then of his petition here in Matthew 6? Well, for starters, I think it helps to clear up what most commentators consider to be a poor mistranslation here. Virtually everyone agrees that instead of deliver us from evil, we ought to translate deliver us from the evil one. And there's three or four different uh, grammatical boring reasons for that that I'll spare you. But why does it matter from the evil one? What difference does it make? Well, we know from the book of Job in the Old Testament that God, at times, is given permission by God. He's, Satan, Satan is actually used by God to test our faith. And by the way, if anyone ever asked you apologetics, that's one of the reasons that God, a good God, can still allow a be, being like Satan to exist in the first place. We're encouraged in 1 Peter that when we are tested by the tempter, that's another nickname for Satan, God doesn't test us, God doesn't, God test, God doesn't tempt us, James 2. Clear that up. Satan is the tempter. When we, are encouraged, we are encouraged when we are tested and tempted in 1 Peter that we can rejoice that you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But also notice in that passage We're grieved by the trials. We're not blessed by the trials, right? We're grieved by the trials. It's the same thing in James 1, 2, and 3, when James says, we count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. But note again, we meet trials. We don't seek trials, The Greek is even more clear. The word literally means to stumble upon. When you stumble, when you happen upon trials, then consider it joy. You make lemonade out of lemons. But in the meantime, we pray that God would spare us from the testing. Even Jesus prayed this in the Garden of Gethsemane before the night before his crucifixion. He prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. Spare me the testing but not my will, but yours be done. Have you ever gone through something in your life that you look back on now and you say, man, God taught me more through that than probably any other single experience in my life, and yet I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy? Anybody had that experience? Yeah. That's what Jesus is getting at here. You know, they say that you learn more from your losses than you do from your wins. It sure stinks to lose, doesn't it? Wouldn't you rather win? Maybe I'm just the only one. I like to win. Very competitive. Jesus says, Jesus says, pray that you are spared from having to learn from the losses. Pray that you're spared from having to learn the hard way. And so often in our case, unlike Jesus's, the hard way for us when we are tempted involves us actually falling into that temptation, doesn't it? We, we fall into the temptation. We give in. And the fact that Jesus would spend one of his three magic wishes, his petitions, asking God to help us to avoid even being tempted to fall into Satan's traps should give us an idea of how seriously Jesus treats sin. So the final challenge for us this morning is do we? 
Do we treat sin that seriously? Do you and I? Do we treat it as seriously that we would regularly pray daily, beg God, Father, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, the evil one. If you only had three wishes, would one of them be for deliverance from temptation to sin? Do we want it that much? I like how David Turner sums up the passage in his commentary. Whatever one's wants, one's deepest needs are found in these three requests, daily sustenance, forgiveness, and avoidance of sin. May that be our prayer today and evermore. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for our spiritual bread. It brings life to our souls and to our bodies. God, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark about yourself, about ourselves, and about our need for you. And about what you've done for us, Father, to meet that need in Jesus. And Father, we thank you for him this morning, not just his death and resurrection, but his life too. As a model lived for us, Father, we thank you that you haven't left us in the dark about not just salvation, but, but sanctification, about life. And Father, that you would give us your word to teach us how to pray. God, we want to be better prayers. We want to be better followers of you, better disciples, walk in step with you more closely. And so, God, I pray that you would use your prayer this morning as a mirror to hold up to our hearts for self-examination as we consider these petitions and we consider the prayer as a whole. Do we, are you our Father? Do we look to you with that same intimacy that Jesus did? Do we recognize your transcendence that you're in heaven above us? Do we recognize it with humility? Your holiness, hallowed be your name. Do we have a passion for hallowing your name in and through our lives as we submit to your will and follow you? God, do we have a passion for your kingdom that it would come on this earth as it is in heaven? An excitement about the role that you give us to play in that, sharing the gospel and in meeting physical needs too. Father, do we lean on you, rely on you for not only our spiritual bread but our physical necessities as well? Are we grateful, content people and are we generous to others? Father, do we forgive? Does your forgiveness motivate us to forgive others? And are we passionate about eliminating sin as a part of our daily reality? Inviting your sanctifying Holy Spirit presence into our heart more and more so that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit in our sin. Father, we thank you for this prayer, for your word, for your son, that even when we fall short on these challenges and we don't live up to the calling, your grace is sufficient. And our eternal security 
and secure, not by our works, but by grace through faith alone. In Jesus' name we pray.